Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and thank you for joining me for what is a very special episode of Living History. Throw the streamers, pop the champagne, it's our 200th episode. And wow, what an adventure it has been. I can't believe some of the things we've done over those 200 episodes. We've had an incredible range of talented historians come on the program to talk about very exciting chapters of history. We've visited historic sites, we've seen castles, we've seen ships, we've seen aircraft, we've walked through ancient forts, we've walked across a lot of battlefields. I've really enjoyed getting out there and walking the ground and exploring history firsthand. And we've had some wonderful guests on the program, really well-known people who've done some pretty fascinating things in the world of history. What I have to say is thank you. Thank you to you, the listener. This would be nothing without you. So I really appreciate you having joined me on this journey over the last several years. And what I wanted to do to celebrate 200 episodes is to look back across those years of broadcasting and some of my highlights from the last 200 episodes and, and some of the things that really stood out. So I hope you enjoy this journey with me. If you've missed any of these episodes that we're talking about, go back and look them up in our archive. They are all available to download for free. And like always, there is a subscriber-only additional bonus episode associated with this episode of the podcast. And the special episode this week is the complete interview with the Tobruk veteran, Bert Lamerton. So if you would like to hear that complete interview with Bert, please do subscribe. There's a link in the show notes. But thank you once again for joining me on the journey, and I look forward to travelling with you on that history journey in the future on Living History. One of the earliest episodes we did of the podcast was a discussion with a good friend of mine, Richard Osgood, who is an archaeologist from the Ministry of Defence in the UK. And Richard had just been on an archaeological dig to examine some human remains that had been found in an island off Portsmouth. And it was really quite extraordinary because as they explored the site, as they investigated the remains, they came up with a theory that these could be the bones of convicts who are destined for transportation to Australia, but who died of disease while being kept on prisoner ships known as hulks uh, anchored uh, in Portsmouth. And so that was a really fascinating angle that they were exploring. So I think you'll enjoy this. It's Richard talking about the discovery of the bones and his theory as to where they could have come from. If your if your readers are familiar with um, 
um, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. The the prisoner Magwitch is incarcerated on just one of these things. They're, they're shoved onto the ships, um, put into the into the sea, and they're they're kept there. They're they're brought out to to, to work, but they are convicts, and they're kept there hopefully for not a long period of time prior to transportation to Australia. That's that's the the standard sort of sentence. It could be absolutely brutal. I mean, I think a case in point. I, I came across a. Um, a sentence of, of a child. He was eight, he was eight years old, and he was given seven years as a prison sentence for stealing. Uh, I think it was twelve twelve shillings worth of copper. And these these were brutal times, and the sentences correspondingly were, were very very harsh. It's almost beyond comprehension. Uh, these people are given a, a bed space, and we're, we're talking in a hammock uh, of about six foot by about a foot and a half and they've got to be incarcerated in these in these areas they're they're not out for for many times if they are taken out they're shackled manacled and taken onto the foreshore to to break stones as part of the building process in the harbors they've got a very limited diet um i think it's meat up to five days a week and then two or what are called burgoo days when you'd get um fish given to you but they're not particularly nice fish um and, and some fairly poor quality bread and of course the contractors providing this are trying to make as much profit as possible so the bread is low quality and they're trying to get rid of as much of the the, the poor quality foodstuffs on these people um they've got a, a prison uniform that's not really up to much um the temperature must have been absolutely bitter if it's anything like this at the moment the temperatures in the uk um it, it must have been a horrendous thing and of course if you're incarcerated with six seven hundred other people um if disease gets on board these ships then you are in a lot of trouble because things like uh, typhus and tuberculosis and uh, cholera really would rip through a, a prison ship community and could would kill an awful lot of them about about 30 percent of the ship's um inhabitants in the early years of the of the prison hulks were, were dying so it really was quite a big problem and therefore you had to have burial grounds to get rid of the, the corpses and that, that is one possibility of rat island a key part of the program over the years has been speaking to veterans about their experience and it's been some of the most captivating conversations i've had and someone who's done a lot of this and i'm very jealous of is peter hart who you would have heard a lot from during the during the podcast and Peter, for 40 years, was oral historian at the Imperial War Museum in London. And what that meant was he got to speak to thousands of veterans from the First and Second World Wars. And in the early days of the podcast, I was fortunate to sit down with Peter and hear him talk about that experience interviewing veterans and also to play some audio of those experiences. So please enjoy Peter discussing the interviewing of veterans and also listening to some of those veterans in their own words. Well, it was started too late in a lot of countries, you know. So we started in the early 70s here and we did 50 interviews on the First World War. And then we thought we'd done it. Uh, you know, I restarted it with the, with the support and backing of my colleagues in the Sound Archive and the money supplied by, by my, you know, by the, the museum itself. And we then interviewed more like 2000 more in the 80s. And that was more appropriate. But we've done tens of thousands of Second World War ones, you know. Uh, and, you know, they're now starting to be less detailed. They're now starting to be like the First World War ones. You know, some are very good. I did a 70, what, a uh, 35-hour interview with uh, with a, a navigator from uh, from uh, uh, bombers uh, operating out of Italy, and, you know, and he was only in action about six months, but going through all his training, all the techniques he used, the aircraft he flew, he was mainly Sterling's, uh, it was unbelievable. The guy was, he was sat there, he was 94, but uh, he was quite frail. Uh, but but he, he, he had the determination 
to leave his story. And he name checked every member of his crews and he gave me a, a potted history of them, how, what they did. And if they were killed, he, he spoke about that, about when they were killed and about how he felt about that. That, that to me was an amazing privilege to, 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 to be, to be able to interview that chap. Again, I, I haven't, I haven't been able to give you an example from his, his work, but you know, I think you can get my enthusiasm for it from, from what I'm talking about. And this man caught a burst of machine gun fire right in his bottom, right in his bottom part of his body. And I can remember it because he jumped an instinctive muscle movement. And I bet he jumped five foot in the air. I've never seen anything like it, almost like a circus turn. It must have been sort of some nervous reaction as these bullets hit him. He jumped in the air and dropped on the floor. And the bottom of his body was just worked away. And I can remember looking at a complete stranger and looking at this blood and he was frightened. Remember, this is frightened. He was, his eyes were terrified. And uh, I can remember crouching down and trying to, um, you know, console him. And I can remember saying to him, all this noise going around. And, and I can remember saying, you're all right, lad, you're all right. Don't worry, you're not badly wounded. We'll soon have you away. You'll be all right. I reckon you've got a blighty. Soon you were back in and, and talking like this to him and uh, trying to um, ease his fear because he... And while I was talking to him, I noticed the the sun was settling on his eyes, and he wasn't—he was dead. He died in my arms. I've been fortunate during this journey on the podcast to get to speak to a number of veterans from the Second World War and later conflicts, and I wanted to bring you this one—one one of the most special interviews I did. It was with a World War Two veteran by the name of Bert Lamerton, and Bert had served in Tobruk. He'd served in El Alamein, he'd served in New Guinea, he'd served in Borneo. He'd served basically through Australia's entire Second World War experience. And I spoke to him in his home when he was well over 100 by this stage, but still so sharp and had so many gripping tales to tell from his service during the war. So it was a real privilege to sit down with Bert and hear his account. And here he is talking about the darkest days of his war experience during his service in Borneo. The worst, I think the Ream Road Patrol probably was the, the, the was the one that affected us most because we were working in territory that we were familiar with from training but uh, which was totally different to what we had been dealing with in the Middle East. And it was a bit tricky in the sense that you didn't know what was in front of you. We knew that there were enemy because uh, it was pointed pointed out to me uh, the smoke from their cooking camps. So that that was the first place I engaged. Uh, And uh, then we were fired on from the rear by mortars and we... At that time, we'd already packed up and we were preparing to leave. So they fired on us from the rear, so we simply pulled the mortar off the off the jeep and loaded it up into the middle of the road and engaged from a point on our... which was on our right behind us when we're looking back to where we were going, headed for home, and we engaged that... Uh, then we engaged on the left, which is also uh, engaging us from behind, uh, so that uh, 
at that that particular point, somebody sighted one of our rounds uh, uh, dropping directly onto their mortar, so we considered that a kill because they didn't fire again anyway. Uh, those were tricky situations because we were unprotected in a sense up in the middle of the road uh, firing a mortar and being engaged from what, what was what was initially our rear uh, and fortunately the bombs from that mortar were dropping down the side of the hill so they were below the level at which we were. But, uh, that, that, one, that one was the most frightening from a point of view of... Uh, closeness to uh, uh, the, the extinction. One of the things I've enjoyed most about doing the podcast is getting out and exploring historic sites. And it was actually fairly hard to choose which one of these to bring you because there's been so many great sites. Please do go back and have a look at our back catalogue and, and join me on some of those journeys to these historic sites. But the one I've picked is the Tamora Aviation Museum and it's near to my heart. It's very close to the town of West Wylong where I grew up out in regional New South Wales and it's just an astonishing collection of aircraft out there at Tamora. If you haven't been, I strongly recommend you go at the first opportunity. And all the aircraft they have in the museum are airworthy. They're all still flying. It's just a remarkable place, potentially unique in the world. There's not the same collection of these aircraft anywhere that I know of. Uh, And so it was great to go out there, see the aircraft, go behind the scenes and see how they were maintained and, and kept airworthy. And, uh, and here is one of the, uh, the curators talking to me about the Gloucester Meteor, probably not the first plane you'd think of in, uh, in the company of Spitfires and, and Hudson Bombers and all sorts of things, but it's just a fascinating story about the Gloucester Meteor, one of the first jet aircraft employed by the Allies uh, at about the time of the Second World War. So please enjoy this clip from the Tamora Aviation Museum. We're standing in front of a, uh, a Gloucester Meteor F-8, um, the Gloucester Meteor F-8 was the first jet-powered aircraft uh, the, uh, on the Allies' side to see military service. Um, the Gloucester Meteor F-8 was flying in World War II, uh, and one of its effect, one of its roles uh, was in the um, interception of German V-1 missiles. The German V-1 missile was a flying bomb, uh, and the Gloucester Meteor, being a jet-powered thing, could actually intercept them and uh, and deflect them off course. They were a pilotless, pilotless aircraft, the V-1 was, so the pilot of the Gloucester Meteor could actually, by using his wings under the wings of the flying bomb, deflect the V-1, and hopefully then it would have fallen on a less populated area. But this particular one now, the F-8 that we're looking at, uh, is called Hailstorm. Um, and it is in honour of a guy called George Hale, uh, who came from Tasmania. And I'm now looking at the side of the aircraft with a map of Tasmania on it and the word Hailstorm across the map, and underneath are silhouettes of two Russian-built MiG-15s. In 1953, George Hale was involved in what I believe to be Australia's last air-to-air dogfight, uh, in which George was... Uh, talented enough, fortunate enough, lucky enough, or perhaps a combination of all three, uh, to uh, engage two Russian MiG-15s and to make a definite kill on one of them with a possibility on the other. Um, George, when we restored this aircraft, was still alive, so uh, as with the case of the Mark 8 Spitfire, George was invited back here 
uh, to relive a little bit of his past and to reacquaint himself with an aircraft of the type that he flew in Korea. Currently, this Gloucester Meteor F-8 is the only surviving F-8 Meteor left flying in the world. Someone who's a great friend of the show and has done quite a few interviews with us over the years is the one and only James Holland. What a fantastic historian he is, particularly about the Second World War. I think he knows more about it than just about anyone. If you haven't heard his podcast with Al Murray uh, called We Have Ways of Making You Talk, do go and check that out because uh, it's one of the best World War II podcasts out there. But James is a good mate and he's come on the show several times to talk about a range of topics. Again, hard to choose which one to uh, to bring you this time, but I've decided to go with North Africa uh, because it's a topic close to James's heart. He's done a lot of work on it, and it was just a really interesting chat I had with him about the North African campaign. And this is James talking about the significance of Tobruk and why it means so much to Australia and why it's important that we don't forget about what went on there in the North Africa campaign. So please enjoy this chat between me and James Holland. The big thing about Tobruk is is the, the it was it was unbelievably how uh, well it showed two things. First of all, it showed how tough the Aussies were and all the other guys who were there. I mean, it, you know, bloody hard, kind of being stuck in Tobruk all that time. I mean, don't forget they were being kind of resupplied by the sea, which was the 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 boon of the whole thing. You know, that's what made it possible. What was so awful and what what was so abject about the fall of Tobruk in June 1942 is that the most sensible thing would have to have been done away with the Gazala line, which is about you know, 15 miles further west from Tobruk itself, and actually just reinforced Tobruk. So you don't bother with a line. What you do is you, you create your own lines of sort of Torres Vedras around Tobruk, absolutely drench it in mines, and just make it completely impregnable. Now, Rommel can bypass Tobruk if he wants and go into Egypt, but he can't bypass it for very long. He's got to turn and face and deal with it. Because otherwise, Tobruk is going to spring out and cut his forces in two because his supply lines are going to be incredibly long. And there's no way he can get into Egypt and protract a major campaign while Tobruk is strongly held. But the idiots that are running 8th Army at the time don't do that. They create a separate line, separate and away from Tobruk. And that just makes no military sense whatsoever. And so what happens is... Rommel goes down the bottom of the Gazala line, turns around behind the back of it, envelops it, everyone collapses, and the Tobruk garrison, which is very small by this point because everyone's in the Gazala line, then has to fall back in disarray, and so it's lost. And it's so shameful because, of course, the Aussies and the others who are defending Tobruk for much of 1941 do so so brilliantly and show how, how one can defend a place like that. So for it to suddenly collapse in June 1942 is really bad. So I think I think the Australians are rightly proud of of Tobruk, but you should also be rightly proud of what they do at Alamein, which is really, really phenomenal. I mean, it's it's it that that is just brutal infantry operations in incredibly tough conditions, and they just keep going. And they're the ones that kind of push further than anyone else um, in the you know on the main northern thrust. So I think you should feel really proud of both parts, really. And I think you should feel disgruntled. I think, I think Aussies have got right to feel disgruntled about what happened at Brook in the summer of 1942. In 2015, I was fortunate to take a, a large group to Gallipoli for the centenary. We took about, I think, 2,000 people 
uh, with our tour company, Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, to walk the ground of Gallipoli for the centenary. And during that experience, I got to know someone who I'm sure you have heard of and I'm sure you know his work very well. It's Eric Bogle, the folk singer who wrote the iconic, the band played waltzing Matilda about the Gallipoli campaign. And I was absolutely privileged to take Eric to Gallipoli for the first time. He'd never been. He wrote this song in the 70s and he'd never been to Gallipoli. And the first time he came was with us to commemorate the centenary. And I got to become good friends with Eric and uh, and we both lived in Adelaide at the time and so we spent many nights together with uh, probably a few too many beers or whiskeys just talking about about life and, and, and the experience of history and war. And one night I took my recorder with me and I convinced him to sit down and have a chat just about the origins of his songs and what they mean to him and then to perform a few songs as well. So it was a, a remarkable evening. So I hope you enjoyed this. This is Eric talking about... The band played Walsing Matilda and how the song came about and how he now views it all these decades later. It's a careless song. I think uh, it's an honest song. If, if any future people, when I'm dead, criticise my stuff, if they agree that my songs are honestly meant... <laughs> If lacking somewhat in talent, then I'll be happy enough. Matilda was an honest attempt for me to try to say, this is bullshit, Mary. You know, all these young boys are dying for nothing. What are we doing across there, you know? Um, so that's what I tried to convey with the song. So I can live with that. I could wish that I'd I put some things differently. There's not a song alive who doesn't look at their past songs and think, oh, maybe I should have said this or done this or done that. No such thing as a perfect song exists. However, having said all that, I can live quite comfortably and proudly with the song. The fact that it's come to mean so much to a lot of people, including veterans, which really pleases me, that's what gives me impetus to to go on with it, if you like. Um, I wasn't there. I mean, how how can somebody who was born, you know, decades after the Calupi expect to capture it? What I hope, veterans especially, I'm talking veterans from Timor, from Vietnam, from all these different... Afghanistan realise that I'm on their side and that means something to them because so often the public are not you know, Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy how's your soul the thin red line of heroes and the drums are being to roll um, so when they find you know a tree hugging latte sipping you know greeny like me on their side it's a bit of Philip to them they realise well Maybe we're not wasting our lives and our, our, you know, maybe we are doing something that, that, that people are supporting, if not admiring, at least. And that pleases me about Matilda. The fact that it's been accepted by the veterans, you know, and the, the, the Greenies and the Peaceniks and so all this cross-section of the population have got what they want out of this song. 
you know, so it's appealing to them all. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've done a couple of controversial topics on the podcast over the years and some that have drawn... Uh, more than their fair share of heated comments when we posted them. Uh, and the two that rank the, as the most controversial are the two I'm going to bring you now. The first one I didn't expect to be controversial, uh, but it ended up being controversial probably because of just the range of opinions there are about this, but it's the search for Amelia Earhart. And I, again, one of the great moments of my life, I spoke to a bit of a hero of mine, Robert Ballard, the man who discovered the Titanic, the man who discovered... Uh, JFK's patrol boat, the man who discovered the ships that were sunk off Guadalcanal. I mean, Bob Ballard is a man who's pretty much done it all in terms of undersea exploration. And he spoke to me ahead of a new program on the Discovery Channel where he was searching for Amelia Earhart's wreck. And in this clip, he spoke to me about um, what they were actually going through and the theories as to what had happened to Amelia Earhart. And as I said, it was controversial. It has generated just about more comments than anything else. Um, which is fascinating. People have lots of opinions about what happened to Amelia Earhart. The mystery still isn't solved, um, but I thought this was interesting to speak to Bob Ballard about his search for Amelia Earhart. Well, one, she was an amazing woman, way ahead of her times, a pioneer that my mother, my grandmother, uh, many women I know looked up to as a, a great, great role model who showed the world that women can do anything. And so there was that. She was born in Kansas and I was born in Kansas, as was my mother and grandmother. So this is a this is sort of a family thing. And it's been something that I've it's been on my sonar screen for a long, long time. Uh, but I've been you know waiting for the opportunity to to get in the game. And and my uh, research carried me to this area and it gave me a chance to begin the process, which there are multiple theories, as you know as to where she uh, finally met her end. One is that she landed on this island. It was Gardner Island at the time. It's now called Nicomarora, and that she perished on that island. And there's another competitive theory that when she missed Howland Island, where she was supposed to land and refuel, that she spent time going back and forth, back and forth, trying to find Howland Island until she ran out of gas and crashed and sank in the ocean. And there's actually a third theory that she landed on an island in the, in the uh, uh, named Mill Island uh, that was in the Marshall Islands, was occupied by the Japanese, and that she was taken prisoner and died in a concentration camp. So 
obviously we weren't focusing on land and the concentration camps. So we've been focusing on these two theories, the crashed and, and sank around Hallen, and the other one was a landing uh, on Nicomarora. And so we took on Nicomarora first because it was a shallow, uh, shallow uh, enough for us to reach. Our present capabilities is 4,000 meters, and we knew that we could conduct a thorough search around that island with our existing technology. Next year, we go to 6,000 meters, which then makes it possible to take on Hallen. So this is really the first in a series of expeditions that we're going to mount. Uh, we've been actually funded to be in this area for the next 10 years. So we're going to get it. And, and this was just a needle, a very challenging needle in the haystack. Uh, very similar, uh, the Hallen uh, search is very similar to the Malaysian Airlines search area. So it's very, very large area and very, very deep. And you know how challenging that has been. I said before the last clip that I'd done two highly controversial topics, and this one comes out number one in terms of controversy. It's the death of Ned Kelly. And I know that in Australia, nothing inflames passions as much as the discussion of Ned Kelly. To some people, he was an absolute hero. He was the Robin Hood of Australia. And to other people, I've heard him described as a murderous thug who got what he deserved. I'll put all that aside. Um, I'm sure this will gener- generate a lot of comments as well, but I'll, I'll put all that to the side and just say that I loved exploring the history of this and had the opportunity to go to Old Melbourne Jail and uh, and walk in Ned Kelly's footsteps in his last days and see the spot where the cell where he was kept and the gallows where he was hanged and um, led around by a wonderful curator called Trevor who really had a wonderful way of bringing the history to life. So let's hear Trevor talking about those final moments of Ned Kelly. It's his first. He's never hanged anyone in his life before. So he comes across, and in this cell, he prepares Kelly to hang, which means he ties his arms back so he can't grab the rope and interfere. He places a folded cap on Kelly's head, which is going to be pulled down over his face at the last minute so he can't see anything and doesn't know exactly when he's going to die. And then he puts a leather strap round Kelly's knees. They take him out onto the trapdoor here, and Kelly stands under the rope. Now, we've got a rope on the, on the uh, gallows now, as you can see. Um, it's not a real hangman's rope, but it looks like it. They used a three-strand rope, and uh, it had been carefully measured, uh, about eight feet long. And that was, the rope was that long because uh, Kelly was the weight that he was, about nearly 80 kilos, and they'd worked out if you weighed 80 kilos, you needed to drop about eight feet. Now, to me, that seems a lot, but that's what they had. Um, you had to drop that length because when you hit the end of the rope, you stop with a bang and your neck snaps. And if your neck doesn't snap, you're in big trouble. There was a noose at the end of the rope, um, a great big knot. Up uh, John puts the noose over Kelly's head pulls the knot tight uh, and lodges the knot just under the left ear. They think that's where you put it to make maximum damage. And then he pulls down the, the cap over his head so he can't see anything else. And the next thing he does, he steps off the trapdoor and pulls the lever on the other side. There is a huge crash. And this wooden trapdoor on the floor just drops open. Kelly plummets down, 
hits the end of the rope, stops with a jerk, and his neck snaps. He's instantly unconscious. He doesn't feel another thing, but of course that noose keeps tightening around his neck. It stops blood getting to his brain and oxygen getting to his lungs. And in a couple of minutes, it's all over. Ned Kelly's dead. I've been privileged to speak to some really wonderful guests over the years, and some pretty big names have graced us with their presence, and I'm extremely grateful to all those people who've come on. So I wanted to bring you a few of these special guests that we've had in the years uh, over the podcast. And the first one is someone who I'm sure is no stranger to anyone who loves their history, and particularly their history podcasts. It's Dan Carlin, and Dan's Hardcore History is probably the most popular history podcast in the world. Um, And it was just a real privilege to speak to him about what he had coming up. Now, interestingly, this was just before the coronavirus pandemic, which I'm sure we all remember. And so it was fascinating. Dan had a new book out about the end of the world and the disasters that could befall mankind. And he spoke specifically about the risk of a pandemic. And little did we realise at the time that we were only a matter of months away from lockdowns, vaccinations and all the other trials and tribulations of the COVID pandemic. So it was a fascinating discussion. I didn't realise how uh, how insightful it would be until after the fact. But uh, But I hope you enjoy this discussion with Dan Carlin. Well, it actually sort of like one of those ink blot tests that a psychiatrist might give somebody in the old days, because my editor said to me, you know, surely you have a lot of things in the files. Go back and see if there's any connecting threads to them. And it's funny because when I do these podcasts, I do them individually. I don't think about them as having any broadly connecting themes. So I was going through my old work going, holy cow, I'm really interested in the end of civilization. I'm really interested in these recurring challenges that force human beings to adapt and respond. And so that's kind of what the book is about. So it has a couple chapters that broadly, these are, I would call them loosely connected vignettes, by the way, rather than uh, anything that makes a concise argument, because I'm a podcaster who deals with questions, if that makes sense. You've heard the show. I don't give answers. Uh, I'm not qualified to give answers, but I, I deal with these questions that have always fascinated people. There's some of the deep, you know, why are we here kind of historical questions. And in this book, we try to look at circumstances where those questions have come into play and then ask how we might respond if the same thing happened to us. And many of these same things that we deal with are recurring human challenges. And it's almost weird that we haven't had to deal with them in a while. So for example, Take disease or pandemics or black plagues or Justinian's plagues or any of those things that throughout human history is part of the human condition. Well, we really, I mean, you know, with some notable exceptions, don't deal with that anymore or haven't dealt with them lately or don't deal with them in most of the world anymore. So I love wondering about the question of recurrence. Is this a recurring human challenge that we have banished forever because of modern medicine and all of the things you and I have been talking about? Or are we just in an intermediary period between terrible pandemics and we're going to see this again? And if we see it again, can we learn anything from other times when when it's it's been around? Uh, And so the book kind of looks at those. So we have pandemics, we have uh, systems collapse, like when the end of the Bronze Age happened And for no apparent reason that anyone can absolutely finger an entire system, a connected, interconnected world went down. So we look at that and ask, could that happen today? What would it be like if it did? And and what might have done it? So the book is about recurring human challenges and our ability to adapt and evolve to deal with them. 
it's hard to pick a favourite of all the guests we've had on the show, but this one uh, is certainly up there. It was a, a rare privilege to speak to him. I'm talking about Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. This was part of our special series commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landings, and what a treat. I, I was expecting that when we put this podcast together, we'd get an engineer who'd worked at NASA or someone who'd swept the launch pad or something <laughs> before the rockets took off. Uh, but my uh, wonderful producer, Jess, did a brilliant job and got me Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon, one of the NASA astronauts in the Apollo program. And what a privilege to speak to him from his home in Texas. He was a wonderful man who had a lot of uh, fascinating things to say, not just about the moon landing, but also about his career as a test pilot and, and a naval flyer. Uh, and so just a great bloke to talk to. I was very lucky to have him on the podcast. It was one of our most popular episodes, unsurprisingly. So please enjoy this look back with Charlie Duke describing that experience of touching down on the moon. We were so excited. I was like a little kid at Christmas and birthday all rolled into one. I didn't have any fear that I was going to sink out of sight, of course. I was number 10 on the moon, so I just jumped off the ladder and uh, onto the footpad and jumped right onto the moon and started uh, uh, just having this extraordinary 72-hour experience. I felt right at home. Uh, I was excited. I was in awe. Uh, I was in wonder. The moon was probably the most dramatic terrain uh, that you could possibly imagine. Nothing like it on Earth at all. And so you're there looking at this uh, gray surface that's covered with this very, very fine dust like powder. And so everywhere you walked, you left your footprints. You looked off at the horizon, and the moon was very bright everywhere you looked. But at the horizon, it turned to instant darkness uh, since there's no uh, atmosphere. And you look up into the sky, and uh, the only object you could see was the Earth. But for us, the Earth was right overhead. And as you look up in your Apollo helmet, you can't see up straight up. So we couldn't see it. But the rest of the sky was just this blackness. Uh, and, uh, of course, the sun. But uh, it's so bright, you don't look at it with just the sun visors we had. They were not capable of looking strictly at the sun. It was really dramatic. Uh, rough terrain, cratered, hilly, uh, just uh, a dramatic. And I kept thinking... Nobody's ever been here before. I'm on the moon, and nobody's ever been here before. John and I are the first. program is a historian who, again, needs no introduction, Dan Snow, probably the UK's most famous historian. And Dan's been a great supporter of the stuff we've been doing here on Living History. He's, he's made his time available quite often. He's a, he's a really great bloke and uh, someone who's a great supporter of the show. Uh, I love everything Dan is doing. Check out History Hit if you haven't already. A great podcast a great dedicated subscription TV service that Dan launched. So he's, he's a great historian. He brings some great stories to life. So, so check those out on History Hit. Uh, but I was happy to have a chat to Dan just about his journey to this point. And I wanted to speak to him particularly about uh, the, 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 some of the flack that he cops. Um, I just referred to him as a historian. I use that term because he's someone who brings history to life. But there was a campaign for a while basically headlined that Dan Snow is not a historian and giving him a really hard time. So during a, an interview I had with him, I, I wanted to, to raise that issue and just find it his take on it. And he was very open with me about about uh, how sometimes those remarks were quite cutting, um, but how he, uh, you know, he, he strove to uh, 
to to rise above them. And it was a fascinating chat, and I think you'll enjoy this excerpt. So let's hear from Dan Snow. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wrestle with this every day, and I, I like to pretend that um, it doesn't affect me when when academics say that I'm an idiot. Uh, but it does, you know, that that is something that that I struggle with, and I, and and all I can do is try and be as good as I can be, and. But also, I make mistakes all the time, and because you know, if you're involved in the, if you're involved in um, popularizing history, and and you, you put out a tweet and you say, "Oh my goodness, today is the first time in 200 years that Westminster Abbey had been whatever," and then some area specialist will be like, "That is not correct," and you're like, "Okay, sorry," and you have to get raw. But you know, you, and and then so if people are looking, you know, scrutinizing you the whole time, uh, you know, I I give them plenty of ammunition. I I mess up and I apologize and I move on and I try and try and do a better job next time. So, uh, but I, I do, and I do feel that, uh, that, you know, that the, the, the greatest historians of the world are the ones at universities who are working away on these extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily ambitious. You know, I had a, a historian the other day writing a history of, of British democracy on the podcast and he's just, you know, he's a legend. Uh, I guess my other thing is I, I, I'm here to try and multiply the impact of those guys. I mean, my podcast has got women and men from academia on it the whole time. Uh, 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, unedited, l- listened to by millions of people a month. Um, I, I hope that I'm doing my bit. You know, if it's, it's, it's not just me. It's not me ranting into a, into a phone and then broadcasting my version of history. I, I hope that I'm able to celebrate some of the greatest work that's, been, that's going on at the moment by historians. Uh, and, and when great, you know, big, big books come, I mean, I have a range of people on the podcast, from veterans to popular historians to tour guides to 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 academics. But I and I hope I'm celebrating them and 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 helping amplify their work. Uh, that's and, and then the ambition, of course, is as you know, as I get as my operation gets bigger and better, um, I'll be doing less as well. Like I'd like to sit sit back and just let a great historian uh, front front the piece um, once I can afford to pay people properly, uh, which is a you know soon coming soon so I, I hope i think it's it's always important to be mindful of that I, I don't i think we have i think humans have every right to think about to discuss to write to, to talk about history we, we shouldn't be hurt then when specialists and academics kind of criticize us because that's part of it and i look forward to that exchange and i learn from that um but i but i defend the right of people like me and you to to get out there and go and visit anzac and and go and visit you know, the Kokoda Trail and, and talk about our experiences and, and share some of that content. Like, I, you know, you, there can't there can't be an exclusivity to it. Uh, but I but I also am mindful that I'm, I'm telling people about my shortcomings. I'm explaining that sometimes I'm the I'm the kind of entry level person. And, and the, the, these are the books they might want to read or these are the shows they might want to watch if they want to take their interest further. So I, I, I'm sure I don't get the balance right, but that's the ambition. We cover a lot of First and Second World War topics on the podcast, basically because they're very close to my heart. Uh, But we do like to spread our wings a little bit and cover other chapters of history. And there was one battle that I wanted to talk about specifically, a battle that I don't know very much about, admittedly. And I know so little about it, I always struggle to pronounce the name. Isandlawana. I think I did okay. That one, the, the famous British battle against the Zulus in South Africa in the 19th century. And joining me to discuss it was Dan Hill, a great historian who really knows his stuff, uh, particularly about this chapter of history. And it was just a very enjoyable experience talking to Dan about Isandlawana. Um, and 
I think from an Australian perspective, somewhat overlooked, um, but it was a popular episode as well. A lot of people tuned in to hear about this. Again, a lot of controversial remarks on social media and uh, comments on the podcast, but that's great. That's why we're here. We're here to hopefully encourage discussion, and this episode certainly did that. So let's hear from Dan Hill talking all about Islad Luana. When it comes to studying a particular battle, it's fascinating because actually the last moments of the... um of the British squares in and around the battlefield. Of course, there, there are no British accounts because not one single man survives from that period. Um, that being said, there there should be, by rights, thousands of Zulu accounts. And uh, whilst there's no written tradition at that time in the in the uh, Zulu culture, there is a, a strong um, oral history tradition. And, and, and that tells us about the, the final moments and actually what happens to those uh, those men in those squares in the, the shadow of San Luana Mountain itself and and two people stick in my mind one of them is is a man commanding C Company of the first battalion twenty fourth foot a man by the name of Reginald Young Husband and uh, Young Husband is probably one of the last formed bodies of troops on San Luana Mountain at, at the end of the battle. And uh, the reason being that he manages to break off from this this terrible fighting that's going on. And, and he actually scales Isan Luana, this high prominent rock out in the middle of this plain, and manages to to get about 50 of his blokes to put their, their backs against the mountain itself, which at least protects them on one side. And uh, they put up some pretty stiff resistance, firing off the last of their rounds until eventually... Um, Inevitably, they run out of ammunition, which means you have men and bayonets, and, and there's only ever going to be one outcome. But there's a really touching kind of Victorian moment in this uh, in this episode, which is just as the uh, very strangely, just as a an eclipse that day is reaching its height, uh, which actually gives the Zulu um, modern name of the battle, the Day of the Dead Moon. Just as that's happening, uh, young husband uh, reportedly knowing that this is the end, goes along the line of his men, his 50-odd men lined up against his San Luana, one by one shakes their hand. And uh, just as he's finished that, a Zulu account from a Zulu warrior there says that he draws his sword, whirls it around his head, and as a group, this 50 or 60 uh, exhausted and terrified men charge down into this mass of thousands of Zulus and put up a, a few seconds of fight before finally they're overcome. I mean, that's a really powerful image for me, that. Uh, what incredible bravery, but bravery on both sides. In addition to military history, one of the topics that really excites me in the history space is music, the cultural impact of music, the history of music, particularly modern music. And I'm sure you've heard my uh, my my podcasts about the Beatles and my numerous social tweets about walking in the footsteps of these famous acts and a fantastic movie came out a few years ago called Echo in the Canyon, and it was about the 1960s music scene in a very specific place, Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles, and it was a great documentary. It was hosted by Jacob Dylan, Bob Dylan's son. It was directed by Andrew Slater, who was responsible for the project, and he was formerly the president of Capitol Records in Los Angeles, so a man who knew a lot about music. This was his debut as a director. And he did a fantastic job. He brought together a lot of those musicians that were there during the 60s to tell their story. And I tell you what, some of the stories that came out were quite revealing. Go and check it out if you haven't seen it. Echo in the Canyon. But in the meantime, here's Andrew Slater talking about his inspiration for the songs in the film. 
it begins with the electrification of you know folk music and uh you know part of the process is okay what songs you know can you identify that have the narrative which is uh if the film is going to be about the echo of people's ideas and creativity then what influences what and so while you could certainly say, oh, well, let's take um, good vibrations from the Beach Boys. To me, I don't think anybody needs to hear another version of that. That's probably one of the quintessential 60s singles, maybe, you know, the singularly best California song of that period. Um, but, you know, if you think about In My Room, the intimacy of that song, and then you think about you know, Fiona Apple and her and, you know, her own persona. I think it suits that. But clearly, with Bells of Rimney uh, by Pete Seeger, uh, George Harrison hears that song uh, that Roger McGuinn electrifies. And he writes, If I Needed Someone, which goes on Rubber Soul, which Brian Wilson hears, and he does pet sounds which the beatles hear and they then make you know sergeant pepper and so i just feel like that was the kind of basis for the tent poles of what we were doing one of the most popular episodes we've done in recent years was not about military history at all but about colonial new south wales and of all things a hangman a man who was an executioner in the, in the early days of the colony by the name of Nosy Bob, so named because of some sort of accident or disease, cost him his nose. So he certainly stood out in a crowd, I can tell you that much. But a fascinating book was written about him by Rachel Franks, which was called An Uncommon Hangman, The Life and Deaths of Robert Nosy Bob Howard. And it basically tells Nosy Bob's story via his 62 victims. Um, and it was a great uh, a great book, and a great discussion I had with Rachel and unexpectedly popular. A lot of people tuned in to hear all about the grisly past of Sydney and the executions that Bob carried out. So I hope you enjoy this discussion with Rachel as she talks a little bit more about Nosy Bob. So he's a hangman on scaffolds. He's based at Darlinghurst Jail, but he travels all over New South Wales um, to do this ultimate act of the law and send people off. As they say, there's some great euphemisms from newspapers of the day. So you don't want to call them the person about to be hanged. That's a bit too graphic. So they'd often be referred to as the patient. So he's 28 years. He hangs 61 men and one woman. And he's mostly pretty good at his job. Most hangings go off without fuss. But to tell his story... Because he didn't leave diaries or letters or anything like that that most biographers would just delve right into and, and get a timeline and get all the things that he thought and felt, um, I had to go through his hangings. And that's where the title of the book comes from. So it's his life, but it's told through his 62 deaths and the people that he hanged. So I talk about the crimes that were committed. I speculate about who I think was innocent. 
And I also talk about the abolition movement at the time. So a lot of people are quite surprised to learn that we actually had a really strong outcry against the death penalty quite early on. And it became a source of colonial pride to try and say, no, this isn't who we are, this isn't who we want to be. And there are some really interesting characters who fight and try and have the law changed. Certainly not successful in Nosy's time, but you see our attitudes become clearer, more moral, more wanting to separate ourselves from that convict past. You know, federation is coming. We want to say, actually, we're quite mature and we're civilised and we have answers. We're back this year with a new season of Living History and some absolutely fantastic interviews. We've got some great stuff coming up, so please keep tuning in. And one of the recent episodes we did that was extremely popular was off the back of the new miniseries, Masters of the Air, which tells the story of the US bomber crews flying over Germany in the Second World War. And it's produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. It's effectively the third in the trilogy of miniseries about the Second World War after Band of Brothers and the Pacific. And I was uh, greatly privileged to speak to John McManus, who is someone you will have heard of on the We Have Ways podcast. I also got to speak with him at the We Have Ways Festival in the UK last year. A really great bloke, a US historian who knows his stuff to a depth that I can't even begin to comprehend. I don't think there's anyone who knows World War II history better than John McManus. And it was great to speak to him about the miniseries, but more broadly about the experience of those men flying in the 8th Air Force uh, in uh, the UK during the Second World War. So here's John just talking about the psychological effects of operating as part of a bomber crew. I mean, the psychological effects were so profound, um, so enervating uh, on so many levels um, because, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, in the Army Air Force, is in the 8th Air Force too, you had hope, I guess, because they gave you a, a tour of duty. Um, we don't have that in the infantry in World War II, typically. You you continue fighting until you can't anymore, and we all know what that means, usually. Um, so in this case, you'd have that tour of duty to look forward to, but then, when, like you said, you see what it's like when you're up there. Um, and so it, a lot of these guys who had come into the uh, into his bomber crew and his pilots, now in a position of command responsibility, hadn't really been chosen for their command and leadership ability. It's their piloting ability. And so they're going to have to figure out how do I lead a crew? How do I control guys? What do we do once we're on the ground after this with trying to stay right mentally and flying our missions? And so, you know, so they're the debriefing is part of that. It's also decompression from what you just experienced over those deadly skies of, of, of Germany and elsewhere. Um, the then there's the whole idea of well, how am I going to get through this tour of duty? I mean, if you're an Eighth Air Force bomber crewman in 1943, the percentages say you won't, you can't, you're going down at some point. Doesn't mean you're going to be dead. You might be captured. That's not so good either. But think about dealing with that mentally somehow. Most of these guys are very much results oriented people. And very many of them are very ambitious and kind of upwardly mobile. A lot of them come from pretty tough backgrounds economically. And the, being in the Army Air Forces is a leg up, you know, a way to to, to, to get somewhere in the world. And then you're up against this. Um, 
and I, I think it's profoundly difficult. I think that not just the Eighth Air Force, but all of the combat uh, flyers and all the various units all over the globe deal with some variation of that same kind of psychological problem of maintaining the morale, um, you know, and, and still fulfilling the mission somehow. So that's 200 episodes. It's been a wonderful journey. Thank you for joining me. Uh, hopefully at least another 200 to go. We've got some fantastic things coming up on Living History, so please do carry on listening. So some fantastic historians we're going to interview. We've got a special series on Gallipoli coming up for Anzac Day. And like always, if you want extra content and bonus interviews, please do consider becoming a subscriber. There is a link in the show notes. You'll get early access, ad-free listening, and a whole host of other benefits, including bonus episodes. Thank you for joining me on this special episode, and I'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.